Good evening, everyone. My name is Arkan Fung, and I'm the academic dean here at the Harvard Kennedy School. I'm pleased to welcome everyone to this evening's forum, the FBI-Apple standoff. First, let's give a ha big hand to the Institute of Politics for mobilizing very quickly to organize tonight's event in response to rapidly changing news. I encourage you to check out the website to find out about upcoming events taking place here in the forum. Tonight's topic has captured the headlines because it touches on so many anxieties of our times. Security, terrorism, surveillance, institutional trust, police power, privacy, and the brave new digital age that we all inhabit. Now the specific issue for tonight's discussion is that the Federal Bureau of Investigation would like Apple Incorporated to develop a special version of its iPhone operating system and install a version of that software onto an iPhone very much like this one, but not this one, but one that was used by the San Bernardino shooters. That version of iOS would do several things. It would disable automatic erasing of the contents of the iPhone after a certain number of wrong passcode entries. It would eliminate the forced time delay between entering passcode attempts and it would allow the automated entry of passcodes through a cable or a wireless connection. Now with that new system uh, installed, the FBI thinks that it could break into this iPhone in less than an hour. Everyone with me so far? So, just with those specifics in, the uh, in mind, let's get a sense of the room. Now, everyone who thinks that Apple should not have to develop this operating system, say privacy. Okay, everyone who thinks that Apple should have to develop this system and help the FBI say security. Okay. So, so now we have two excellent speakers here tonight to help us understand this issue. You can't really grasp, much less solve, these issues unless you understand both the policy dimensions and the technology dimensions of this problem and both of our guests tonight have that rare combination of understanding of both technology and policy. John Deutsch, to my left here, is the, an Emeritus Prof Institute professor at MIT. He's been a member of the MIT faculty since 1970 and has served as chairman of the Department of Chemistry, Dean of Science, and Provost, among many other posts. In 1995 and 96, he served as the Director of Central Intelligence at the CIA, and from March 1994 to May 1995, he served as Deputy Secretary of Defense and uh, before that served as Under Secretary of Defense for Acquisitions and Technology. He has advised many presidents on many issues. He served as the president's nuclear, uh, on the President's Nuclear Safety Oversight Committee in 1980, the President's Commission on Strategic Forces, the White House Science Council, and the President's Committee of Advisors on Science and Technology. He earned his BA in History and Economics from Amherst and uh, both the BS in Chemical Engineering and a PhD in Physical Chemistry from MIT. Our second guest is my colleague and friend Jonathan Zittrain. Professor Zittrain is the George Bemis Professor of International Law at the Harvard Law School. He co-founded, directs, and is currently faculty chair of the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. He's a member of the Board of Directors of the Electronic Frontier Foundation and Board of Advisors for Scientific American. He served as a trustee of the Internet Society and a forum fellow at the World Economic Forum. Uh, you should check out his provocative book titled The Future of the Internet and How to Stop It. A uh, long time ago, uh, Professor Zittrain uh, clerked for Judge Stephen S. Williams, F. Williams in the United States Court of Appeals in the DC Circuit and he holds a bachelor's in cognitive science and artificial intelligence from Yale University, a JD from Harvard Law School, and a master's of public administration from the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, both speakers will uh, present for roughly 10 minutes, a little bit more, and then we'll have plenty of time for discussion with the audience. Over to you, Jonathan. Thank you very much, uh, Arkan. Good evening, everybody. Good evening, Professor Deutsch. Uh, very pleased to be here. I will first incorporate by reference what will be Bruce Schneier's Sturm remonstration over privacy versus security in this instance. I imagine Bruce will tell us it's security versus security, um, <laughs> but I'll let him speak to that when the moment comes. 
Instead, I just want to say a few words about the case and where I think uh, things stand. And I say that as somebody who, presuming that the FBI hasn't used up nine guesses and is now sad that it doesn't want to do the 10th on the phone and risk erasing it, somebody who hopes that they had the uh, prevision to be able to guess properly and get into the phone, if they could just do that by talking to the right clairvoyant, um, I think that would make for a better world, and I support that. Nonetheless, I am not supportive of the current effort of the FBI to compel Apple to write some software to try to help the FBI uh, get into the phone. And I, I want to say a little bit uh, as to why that is, even as I can't blame the FBI for trying. It's their job to try. They have lawyers who are going to uh, do their best to persuade a magistrate and then a judge and then probably an appellate court and possibly more than that, that it's a good idea. Um, and that's the beauty of our system. And I should say, in this case, this is not Apple being recalcitrant. Apple is not resisting or defying the FBI. They are simply wanting the entire process to play out and lodging legal arguments to American judges as to why those judges should find the FBI request something that should not be granted by the American system. So uh, I think of it as basically three zones. The first zone is an easy zone in which if Apple just happened to have information in its possession, such as the passcode, and a properly uh, pursued and executed warrant were given to Apple uh, to divulge that to the authorities, this is a no-brainer. Apple would do that. Apple does do that kind of thing, and so do its peer companies time and again. The next stage over is a situation that, to be sure, Apple itself engineered, which is a phone for which it does not itself have the passcode in its possession. Only the operator of the phone may be the one who has it, and the operator of the phone is dead uh, as a result of his uh, terrorist acts. And, uh, why shouldn't then Apple be asked to help this time to undertake effort to, let us be clear, undermine the very security it built to try to prevent others and itself from being in exactly this position where it would open it? Now, what you've heard from Apple is, uh, first, this is, would be kind of like summoning the demon. If we should write this software, supposed to be good for this train at this time only, just this once, well, once our engineers write it, they can't forget that they developed the expertise to write it. Once we've integrated Apple, our own special uh, verification key, our certificate into this new operating system that the phone would accept because we have asserted that it comes from us and not from a stranger, so that the phone would stand down its defenses, uh, there's nothing to stop it either from leaking, a really weird argument if you think about it, really, you, you can't lock this thing in a drawer, but after the OPM leak of millions of American government employees, highly sensitive information, that may not be such a crazy thing to think, but also there really isn't any reason to expect that the FBI and others, as Bruce Schneier is fond of saying, China next, uh, that would demand this kind of intervention as well. At that point, the kind of security Apple is introducing won't be that uh, helpful uh, as a protection for the user. Um, we should acknowledge that this is against a backdrop in many, many instances in which many other paths to data are available. As we go about our daily lives these days, we are truly like exuding data all over the place. And while you can always find perhaps one particular piece of data that we have managed to protect, to zoom in on exactly that and say, no, no, the police need to be able to get there too, I think ignores the reality of investigations. And uh, I think this case is no coincidence that it's in the public eye. The FBI has chosen, chosen this case as an edge case to go public, uh, in large part, I think, I infer, because there's so little privacy instance in this case on the other side. The holder of the phone is dead. It turns out the owner of the phone was his employer. So under a lot of longstanding doctrine, there aren't the usual Fourth Amendment privacy co concerns that you would have about giving me uh, government access here. For Apple's part, it also says um, to order that this be done under uh, this ancient American uh, law, the All Writs Act, 
uh, would end up not just being boundless as far as further requests for data from the phone, but further requests of all kinds. Uh, their brief is an amazing, has a wonderful paragraph. You know their lawyers spent a whole afternoon around a conference table billing like crazy, um, coming <laughs> up with great nightmare scenarios, one of which was, if this is allowed, then you could imagine the government demanding that a company, a pharmaceutical company, be forced to manufacture poison for a lawful lethal injection. Isn't that terrible? And if you're against lethal injection, you might say that's a bad idea. But then I immediately thought, well, what if it's a poison company and they uniquely know the formula to their poison and they're being ordered to generate an antidote as somebody is dying from the poison, that suddenly changes things. But I truly digress. Um, <laughs> so um, let me just say now the third zone. That was just the second zone. The third zone is the next generation of phone that I imagine Apple and its counterparts are hard at work making. And that's a phone that even Apple itself cannot crack. And it's true that when you say a phone that even the vendor can't crack, that's like this boat has 16 airtight compartments. What could possibly go wrong on its first transatlantic journey? But um, let us presume that you could design a phone that would be inured at least to its vendor being especially privileged to crack it. That might be good enough for Apple and try to keep everybody else out as well. I think that could, at least good enough to defeat government work, be done. And in that case, we will really have the next battle. And that battle is, can and should a government like the United States government require, probably through an act of Congress signed by the president, um, technology mandates that would force the uh, company not to build such a phone. I think that is a really bad idea for all sorts of reasons, even though there's a tiny bit of precedent for it in something called uh, Kalea, which I won't talk about now, but we could later. And I just ask uh, you to imagine, suppose somebody makes a shredder so good that no amount of time and scotch tape can let you put together something that has been shredded, even if you have a warrant. And I think the right answer is, gee, that's too bad. I wish a clairvoyant could figure out how to do it, but that's not a reason to limit what shredders can do. And in fact, if you tried, then you'd have to start limiting what matches can do to standard paper. And that is not a bad analogy here. If you do force hardware and internet services and software to maintain access, you will end up with all sorts of companies and people making it that will not obey the mandate and are hard to bring around. Uh, Bruce just came out with a study that showed just how internationally how much encryption software is available. And in the meantime, at worst, you will hobble those whom you can reach, forcing them to make code that will have vulnerabilities in it. I do suggest possible compromise, which I've just floated for the first time today and haven't done so publicly yet. And that is, I would like to, I wonder, would Apple go for this and would the FBI go for this? Having it be that Apple will make a new generation of phone that doesn't default to 10 guesses and you're out, although it has that option if the user is paranoid enough to want it. And if the user fails to elect 10 guesses and you're out, the phone when examined pursuant to a warrant will say what the setting is set to. As far as we know, as far as I can tell, the San Bernardino iPhone may not even be set to 10 guesses and you're out. The only way to find out is to try that 10th guess and be wrong. And uh, nobody wants to do that yet. And if the phone could advertise it, I think what we would find is that 90% of the time, even when the only place for what you want is on the phone, rather than all the other places it could be, such as the cloud, it will turn out that nobody bothered to even set that level of paranoia. And I think that might be good enough for the government, even though, should it encounter a phone for which that has been set, then it would be SOL. That's the compromise I'd at least like to propose, and I'd be curious if anybody uh, working for Apple out there on the uh, video stream says, yeah, we could live with that, and uh, the FBI, I imagine, won't be tweeting back, but maybe we can bring together the lion and the lamb, and I won't say which entity is which. Thank you. Thank you. John. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here tonight. Can everybody hear me all right? I seem to be echoing a bit. Um, I'm going to start uh, in a different direction. I'm not going to start by talking about the Apple phone. I'll 
get back to that maybe at the end here. Uh, I want to start with the following uh, remark. It is the policy of the U.S. government, and it should be the policy of the U.S. government, to encourage as much security in private people's communications, in firms' communications, uh, in the storage of data, whether it's communications data or media. Why am I doing this? Why am I bugging like this? Well, we just need somebody on the board to dial us a down little a little hot. bit. Yeah. Um, it's all, it, that is the policy of the government. It should be. Uh, I must say that when I was Under Secretary of Defense in the first uh, Clinton administration, we undertook uh, the case of. Uh, you can't hear me, sir. You've got the Scylla and Charybdis of. Uh, it either has feedback or it. Here. <laughs> I'm going to have two mics. <coughs> <laughs> I have now truly checked my... Uh, yeah, I don't know if that's going to work, Jonathan. Uh, when, when, <laughs> when the proposal was made for the Clipper chip uh, as being a required hardware solution to encryption for the private sector, thank you, sir. Thank you. He's just about to do an unplug out of my tie and replug so that we minimize the awkwardness. There you go. Thank you. Now is it better? Yeah, he's going to have to turn it up a little he's bit. He's got to turn it up. <laughs> <laughs> this is where we incorporate by reference conspiracy theories about what's going on. <laughs> I think you can try to go. Yeah. So um, is that better? Everybody all right? So there's no question. <laughs> I'm very sorry, I, I apologize to you. There's no question about having a government policy that uh, limits the uh, techniques which can be used to keep privacy uh, as high as possible. Um, the other thing is, we know that the internet is uh, global, it's accessible to all, and that it's going to grow even further. And the problem is that bad people use the internet. And they use the internet whether they are hackers, whether they're criminals, whether they're terrorists, whether they are uh, agents of a hostile uh, government of the United States. Uh, nobody doubts that that's the case, I would believe, in this audience, but it's a growing and serious uh, problem. So what the uh, fundamental issue that this Apple case puts in front of us is not a mere law enforcement case. It's a case about how do you balance that need and that value of privacy with the ability of the government to protect the citizens of the country and the community. That's the real issue here at stake. It's one piece whether they fiddle this time with this operating system is not really uh, an issue. The issue is how far should the government go and what are the rules and procedures that the government should have for being able to tell a private firm or an individual, uh, you really must make the effort to acquire and reveal this data which is in your possession uh, to us because it's essential for the protection of the country. Uh, and there is a big difference here between law enforcement and national security. And part of that is that I think our country is confused on that in how we do it and how we administer it. The law enforcement is primarily concerned with catching bad people and bringing them to justice after an act has been committed. Another set of people, the place where I come from, national security part, are much more concerned with preventing bad things from happening by acquiring the information early enough to avoid uh, uh, a catastrophe. And catastrophes can occur. Could be a plan for a plot with bad group using the internet, storing material, communicating, and planning something like the 9-11 attack. 
we just saw an example of this black energy incursion into the uh, power system in Ukraine. It's possible that uh, some terrorist group or some nut would store in the United States explosive devices in cities or biotoxins in some safe deposit box, and I do want to come back if we have a chance to the safe deposit box, or even a nuclear weapon has been of concern. So there has to be a situation where we recognize that it's in the public interest to have our intelligence services require uh, uh, corporations or individuals to come forward with information that they may have. Only with a, uh, a court order, and here I differ from the previously widespread use of the national security letters, which just have people wander in and ask for information. But the real question is, how are we going to manage to set up a framework of policy supported, first of all, by congressionally mandated uh, laws and then administered by the courts, which sets the boundaries for when a company should and needs to uh, conform. We have such a court, the Foreign Surveillance, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, and that court could be reconfigured and strengthened uh, in a way uh, to do this. Now, the problem is that there's no easy solution here. There's no bright line to saying what is it legitimate to have a, a, a government security agency go to a firm and say, you must give us this, and the firm to say, gee, we really, uh, recognize that this is a legitimate request. I mean, uh, that, that there's no bright line for doing that. It's not always possible to say that uh, there's not an alternative route, as has been argued in this case, as an alternative route that uh, FBI doesn't need this information. Uh, and we also know security agencies, the F even the FBI, is not always correct in their judgments. Not always correct. Let me tell you, I know that that's the case. Uh, nor are they always wise, in which cases they wish to bring forward to ask for this authority for uh, surveillance. But there is a huge difference between saying, I want to have set, what is it, the, the, the U.S. Attorney in New York says, I have 175 drug cases I want to have in Defense Force, and to say there's a real threat of a potential catastrophic terrorist event in Minneapolis. So the, our issue is uh, how to handle that. Now, I will say that I think that compliance with these surveillance requirements puts a considerable burden on these companies, whether it's Apple or Google or Facebook. But uh, eventually, that balance is something that is going to be required. It's going to threaten their reputation, and it's going to threaten their markets. And let me tell you, there are many countries who are very, very pleased to see this problem emerging in the United States because they do not like the commercial success that we've had, I must say regrettably in California more than in Massachusetts, of building this internet economy. But uh, they would like to see some of that activity go to their nations, whether we're talking about China or Germany or France or the UK or Russia. And let me tell you something, in those countries, there's no question about how this would work its way out if there's a, uh, a question of access to information between uh, internet uh, information providers and uh, national security or interior department, interior ministry uh, officials. So uh, it's, it's a big problem for these companies and it's a burden that they have to face. So my point here to you tonight is that whether Apple should be required to perform this or not is not the underlying issue. The issue is how do we craft a policy, implement it in law, and then have it administered wisely in a place where there are no uh, uh, bright lines. Uh, that, I think, is really uh, uh, the essential feature here. And I start out by saying that members of this audience have to start by saying there will be cases where it will be necessary and appropriate for the government to require such release of information from internet service providers or from banks or from what have you. 
and then say, well, now how do we form a policy here? And this really gets to what has makes me so uh, unhappy in this world. It's not so easy to formulate a policy. If you say to Congress, give us a new law that covers this, it's like saying jump ball in a uh, kid's basketball game. You have to have a, th a theory about what that policy should be and be able to have the executive branch advocate it and have it turned into law. So those are the comments I want to share with you and say, we shouldn't worry only about this case. We should worry about the implications of this case for the very much more serious issues that are certain to confront us more and more frequently as we go forward. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you both for being incredibly disciplined. We have plenty of uh, time for questions. Maybe I'll start off briefly with a, a short question. It seems like maybe one point of agreement, I don't know, between both of you. Right now, uh, much of the debate has, been emphasi has emphasized that this is right now in the courts. And so one, you know, kind of following off of Professor Deutsch's uh, comments, maybe the courts are not the right venue at all. Maybe it's up to Congress or some other more democratic body to establish that framework that can strike the appropriate balance between privacy and security, if, if those two things are indeed uh, antitheses. Uh, and should the FBI, I guess the direct question is, should the FBI have just been more patient and said, no, you know, we're not gonna go to a court. It's not the kind of thing that a judge ought to decide. We're gonna wait for Congress to work this out. Well, I, I think there's a little bit of three-dimensional chess going on in the sense that this is against a backdrop of the Obama administration running an interagency process to figure out whether it would be asking for new legislation to meet what is called the going dark problem for which yes. this would just be an artifact. And the administration decided through the White House it wasn't going to pursue that. And I think given that, we then see uh, the FBI and Jim Comey, who've really been worried about going dark, are the ones with a stack of phones along with, say, the Manhattan DA, saying, all right, if we can't get legislation, I guess we've got to go with the judiciary we have and <laughs> leverage the All Writs Act as much as we can. And in some ways, that's what makes this weirdly win-win from a strategic perspective for the government. If they get the warrant that they want, the All Writs Act order that they want granted, it will mean they're in a position to ask for in all like cases, with a question as uh, Professor Deutsch pointed out about what counts as a like case, mere crime, is that enough? Um, and if they lose, then they've got that much momentum to revisit the White House's decision not to pursue legislation, or even to see the Congress independently offer up, up that legislation. I would just offer one other uh, quick thought, which is I am all in favor of democratically elected representatives, at least in theory, deciding on how to balance very difficult things in society. That's what they're there for. Of course, the particular Congress we have is by every account, including the members' own accounts, broken. And this ecosystem, this software ecosystem, is one that has not been shaped by an industrial or governmental policy pretty much other than, God bless you, there are probably a dozen people in this room capable of writing software that they can get up and running on some of the phones in this room and all of the PCs that would grant the level of security for data at rest that makes it a problem as far as the FBI is concerned in serving a warrant against it. How you regulate that is a really tricky problem. Well, I, maybe I've had too much experience with our great United States Congress, but to sort of say to them, gee, tell us, make some new rules for us without giving them any guy. After all, we're at the Kennedy School we're supposed to be suggesting workable policy, uh, from which will be a starting point. It might not be the ending point, but uh, uh, I, I think that the, what's really uh, needed here is a thoughtful policy that balances these things so that prospectively you have less of a crisis. And while I, I, I think that you've got to be careful, there are clearly mixed motives on the FBI. It might be a good strategy or a bad strategy. I don't know their minds. But it's also not such a bad strategy for Apple either. I mean, it's kind of like, 
we're corporate martyrdom. Uh, you know, if we win, we're great. If we lose, well, we tried. You know, so yeah. it's the same. It's not. It's not a happy circumstance, and it doesn't get us to be able to deal with this problem in the future when the problem may be worse, much worse than some set of terrorists and their action in San Bernardino. The PR may be a mixed bag for Apple on this one. <laughs> I can see you know, crypto anarchists rallying and, oh, wow, they're protecting my security. If you actually look at the polling on it, there's a number of people that say, come on, Apple, you should help solve the crime. Well, not, I mean, I spent January in Stanford in Palo Alto, and I can tell you the votes there are the other way. <laughs> yes, well, a <laughs> little selection bias, but yes. So now it is question time, and uh, for those of you who've been to forum events before, you know that uh, question has certain characteristics in this room. First of all, questioners must identify themselves. Second, one question per person, one per customer, and they must be brief, no speeches. And third, all questions end with a question mark. And so uh, there are four microphones, uh, two on the floor here and two up there on the second level. And uh, we are fortunate here to have a building group of people who can help think through what the policy and technology framework ought to be for difficult questions like this. And so I'd like to give the first couple of questions to them. And so first of all, Bruce Schneier is uh, fortunately right there at the microphone. I'd like to give you the first question, sir. Yeah. Hi, I'm Bruce Schneier, incorporated by reference into this uh, <laughs> proceedings. Uh, it seems to me, writ very large, that the reason we're here is that there is this breakdown in trust in law enforcement intelligence community, that people are demanding technology companies protect their security and privacy because they don't trust the government. And, and if there was more trust in the processes that, that feeling would change. So my question is, what can we do, what can government do to, to, make, to make themselves more trustworthy so that these conflicts don't arise as much? <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know whether this <laughs> trust the government or not. I can tell you that if you have another 9-11, there'll be complete trust in the company country and they'll do something more extreme than you would like. So uh, uh, I, I'm not sure that I, I, I think that the reason you want privacy is for very good, sound, obvious concerns. You don't want other people to know what you're doing, what your business is. That's perfectly okay. It's a free country. I don't think it's a trusted government issue. I'd like to see the government uh, come up with a list of things that absolutely will and will not do that would be roughly in the category of lawful but awful as far as they're concerned, rather <laughs> than we will do anything possible under the law and it's not our job to self-limit in any way. We see that in criminal law with prosecutorial discretion. Not every case that can be brought is brought. And we've seen it in the past, such as when, not just for moral reasons, but for other uh, perfectly reasonable strategic reasons, the CIA made it clear that they will not place case officers among members of the Peace Corps. And if it should turn out that there's some Snowden leak and it turns out the CIA has been putting officers in the Peace Corps, that would be really bad. And uh, there are going, I think, to be cyber-oriented things like that, or even the more recent case of maybe we shouldn't use a vaccination campaign as a cover for anything but a vaccination campaign. <laughs> Easy to say in hindsight, I suppose. Um, there are things like that that I, it would be great for our government to take the lead in establishing those boundaries. The only difficulty with that in this case is that the technology is not frozen. So the arrangements that you make now uh, may have no relevance to the technology that exists six months from now. For example, you say Apple can build systems which are, you know, they, the keys go away right away and nobody will ever be able to get into them. I don't know that that's true. I don't know that there's not some undergraduate, presumably at MIT and not at Harvard, who will be able to do that in 10 minutes time words. later on. But uh, uh, the, the, the problem with, with that self-limiting is not, I'm not, not inherently against it, it's that the technical change here is so difficult that it's hard to make it, it's especially hard for a bureaucracy to stick with it. So it's not that easy. And I'm happy to say something about Peace Corps, too, later on, okay. <laughs> Second question goes to Michael Sulmeyer. 
cut you off. Uh, hi, I'm Michael Solmeyer. Just came to the Kennedy School as the director for the new cybersecurity project. And Jonathan, the question I had is this: It's about the federal judiciary. Three branches of government. Probably the judiciary is the one we'd prefer not to be the one making questions of policy, but just calling the law. How would you advise the federal judiciary to avoid being pinned into the corner <laughs> of ultimately having to be the arbiter here? Well, I think if it wants to not weigh in, it has many paths to not weigh in. And in fact, the model from the federal judge, uh, magistrate judge in New York, yes. who was weighing in on, a, in fact, a simpler case about asking for Apple's assistance and breaking into an iPhone that didn't have the level of encryption that the one in San Bernardino does, provides a roadmap to say, either we think this goes too far, and if it's not gonna be a constitutional ground, then it's up to Congress to fix it. And for something back in San Bernardino, like the All Writs Act, it really is cantilevering pretty far out to try to use the All Writs Act to do this. And the judge would be perfectly within bounds to say, leave it to the legislature to frame the kind of policy with advice from folks at MIT and wherever else or a national commission or something. But don't expect the judiciary to fill in the policy blanks. Up here, sir. Can you hear me? I'm wondering what do you think that the role Congress should serve uh, in making this decision when it comes to public opinion on such a complex technological question? I think about, uh, I showed my, my dad a video of a net neutrality discussion the other day and he didn't really understand what was going on. Honestly, I didn't really was understand. Was it the John was Oliver on. video? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, well, that, that's clear. the best we got. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's well, pretty clear. And it was hard when I think about uh, all I can think of is a Ted Stevens speech on the floor about trucks, but that's less clear. Yeah. Dump trucks. Yeah. Sorry. But, uh, oh, it's good. But uh, I'm I'm wondering, to what extent uh, do you think that Congress should have sway in relation to what their constituents want? When this is such a complex issue that I think most Americans, if they, I think most Americans barely even know about, it, and those who do don't understand it. So I'm just I'm wondering, uh, uh, just like, what do you what do you think about their role in this process as well? What a great question, and I think it is both true in the way in which you asked it in the first order, which is about really complex problems. Are the representatives in Congress acting like representatives? Because it's not as if the public may have a formed view at all, much less an informed one. Um, and it's also true at a smaller level, which is too often when there is uh, some way of trying to get uh, user permission for something. Gee, we want all your data. We want to know your location right now because we are angry birds. And you're like, okay. And then why did you share it? It's like because the baby was crying and I wanted to play angry birds and it just said okay to get started. <laughs> Now, that's either a great example of autonomy and choice at work, the person really doesn't care about sharing the location, or it's like, no, people have busy days. You elect representatives to make hard choices with good advice, and you, know, you go on not one policy issue at a time. And it's also why I think we lean too hard in consumer privacy, not what we're talking about here, on the illusion of choice. And I would just say, if you're trying to do the right thing, instead of giving the user a prompt and then whatever the answer is, say, well, that's what they wanted, ask the question, does the prompt amount to would you like to be screwed over, yes or no? And even though some will answer yes, it may be time to say, no, don't prompt them, just don't screw them over. Right. And uh, I think similarly that might be the, the right maxim for making decisions about this at the policy right. layer. Look, I, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, it's hard to see how our system makes something sensible come out of this. But I just would caution every other country is in much worse shape at dealing with this in a sensible way. I mean, you cannot go anywhere, in any, I, I don't know, any place in the world, maybe in Denmark, I mean, I don't know, where there's a, this kind of a discussion about privacy, internet access, uh, both legal and security access right. to those firms. So in some sense, we're way ahead because we have 
public discussion of it without embarrassment. Uh, on the other hand, to know how we're going to come out with a sensible policy that can be uh, uh, administered fairly and properly, that we're a long way from that today. Right. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Up here. Can you hear me? Yes. I'm Hugo Zilberberg. I'm a second year master in public policy here. Um, I actually wanted to ask the exact same question than the gentleman, so I'm going to shift my question to another <laughs> one. Um, uh, we created, with a, together with a lot other students, a forum called the Future Society to actually think about those issues here, and we are having this problem, which is how do you inform the public debate and how do you make people more knowledgeable about those issues so that you can solve them? But since that's already been asked, my second question would be, how do you think of this in the context of international relations, in a sense that uh, we mentioned, actually, China, uh, as potentially having access to the data on this iPhone if that uh, mandate was allowed. Uh, but what about countries, I'm from France, what about countries like France? Would you, not have, would you not want France to have access to that phone? So is there a way to differentiate between countries that you like and countries that you want, that you don't? Or is there just no way, and in this case, we just have to accept that China is gonna have that data? So uh, uh, first of all, let me say that you have here at the Kennedy School, Joe Nye, who is uh, uh, remarkably into this particular question. Is there a way of getting some international, what is the word they use? They use some uh, a compact? Regime or complex. Or, or uh, international, something, uh, to make agreements of this kind. So there is a lot that should be done there, and you can start with our allies. If you trust them, that's okay. Uh, I come from the other part of that. Uh, all I'm, uh, what I'm so conscious of is how uh, large terrorist groups, many, many countries, are very into taking advantage of this information abundance, even if it means that they have to carry it out in what we would consider improper ways in their own country or elsewhere in the world if they have access. So it's uh, very much of a, a, a competitive and, and fast-moving area with a lot of bad things going on. It's not going to be easily be cured by some international agreements, particularly if we don't have a way of finding a sensible policy for ourselves. I think in part this gets to the distinction between a service and a product. I, you may be thinking about MLATs or multilateral uh, mutual legal assistance treaties. I guarantee you I don't think about those. Ah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you have a more enjoyable day than I do. Um, but uh, this is the kind of thing where, for especially around internet services, data collected, not encrypted, at least as to the vendor or the company, uh, you have Brazil wanting Facebook to turn over information about particular accounts and Facebook says, go talk to the US State Department and you know, we'll see you in five years after you've been cleared through an MLAT to do this. And there's surely a lot of pressure to reform that. And often you'll see the companies just saying, give us a set of rules. You know, tell us when we have to turn over the information. That's basically our interest calculable uh, rules here. The way it's been handled traditionally though over the years has been the China, difference between is anything that the US or France can get going to go to China. For the companies, it has often meant where do we have boots on the ground or servers? If we have money parked in that country's financial system, if we have engineers who work there and are subject to arrest, as in Brazil, Facebook just uh, had uh, an executive arrested for something having to do with, I think, WhatsApp. Um, these are the sorts of things that say, well, I guess at the end of the day, they're still our countries, and they're the ones that have a monopoly over the use of force, and oh well. Uh, some companies really try to structure where they put their boots in their servers so that post-China uh, incident Google doesn't have anything in China so they can thumb their nose in a way they couldn't otherwise. Whether that's good or bad or functional over the long term, probably less so. More and more interdependence will mean we can't rely on that to distinguish when China will get access and when France mm -hmm. will. So I think there's that technological dimension of where are the servers and where are the boots on the ground. There's a legal dimension of what the framework is and the agreements are. I think what's at stake in the Apple case here is something different, which is um, the beginnings of an international norm. And do you want, to the extent that there are international ramifications with this kind of little case in California, right? Do you want the international norm to be that 
states can order companies to write code that they otherwise wouldn't write? Or do you want the international norm to be no and you know, the Apple case doesn't settle that one way or another, but it nudges the norm. And if the US government can order, then why shouldn't I be able to as some other, which is yeah. a normative question, not in the first instance. And it may an not hold the Chinese back question. from trying either anyway, way, anyway. but it makes it right. easier to make the argument. To make the argument. So, uh, Mr. Chairman, I just want to make a remark here that I think the notion of saying make Apple write code uh, is not really the essential point here, even in this particular case in San Bernardino. The question is whether Apple has got to un unlock their... Uh, no, but they really would have to write new code. No, I, I know yeah, that, yeah. but I'm saying to you that, that it's obvious to me that that is a, I mean, uh, excuse me, let me say it to you differently. It's, uh, it seems to me that that's a minor part of the issue really in front of us. They're, be, they're, they're saying to Apple, Reveal uh, the e what's the email what's on the phone. Reveal that to us if you've got it in your power to do it, whether it's in the phone or in the cloud or what have you. Right. Yeah. They, the the yeah. fact that they've said you must fiddle with this particular part of the operating system, which may be three lines or three thousand lines, nobody knows. I don't think is really the essential part of it. It may be a distinction without a difference, that's, well, but that's, as a technical matter. Apple, in fact, this is part of why they're supposed to be happy under the order. We're not asking you to look at anything in the phone. We're simply asking you to persuade the phone, as you uniquely can, to accept to new code that you will have to write <laughs> to disable exactly the security feature that you put in. Right. Like, it, you know, the secure enclave in the phone has one job, and you want it not to do the job. You need to write code to persuade the secure enclave to stand down. I, I, I just don't think that that's that, the that makes a part difference. I hear you saying that. Yes. Okay, over here. Hi, my name is John Hawkinson. Uh, we only know about this debate because one judge in California and unsealed the FBI's ex parte motion, and one judge in Brooklyn issued a public order. So we really have no idea how often the All Writs Act has or will similarly be used in the future. Uh, so should Congress require some kind of public reporting, perhaps statistical, of use of the All Writs Act going forward? Or, or maybe not should, but how can they, and, and what should they? I would uh, caution against that. Uh, I would caution against that because there may be instances where informally uh, a, uh, either a law enforcement official, let me just say a security official, goes to a company, an information provider company, and say there's a, a matter here which we really need help on, we're not going to say anything about the Ritz Act or anything like that. We really got a problem here. Will you help us? And uh, the company says, sure, we'll help you because we, we, get, we understand the problem. So they agree to cooperate as good citizens. And to say that you want to make that opinion, that, that uh, uh, relationship, I can understand why transparency is a good thing, but uh, I'm not sure that that's a, a, a requirement that you want to have, that everybody who you go to to ask for help, uh, you have to uh, So if that was voluntary, it wouldn't implicate the law in the same way as if a judge ordered it? Well, I'm not a lawyer, happily, so I don't, can't tell you, but I will tell you, uh, if, if there, there's a, there is a real issue here about what you want, how public you want to be on this. Mm -hmm. It could hurt people, hurt the companies. How public do you want to be? It's true that the answer didn't quite match the question, but raised as interesting a question issue. as the question. They're both interesting. One is, if there is legal activity going on, why should it be under seal, at least if we're going to report it in aggregate, shouldn't there be statistics about legal mandates and subpoenas and other requests? And I think there surely should, and then that opens up a lot of puzzles as to can you make the data meaningful enough? You know, one request might be for some code that would break all phones of a certain model, but it's only one request, whereas a thousand <laughs> might be, you know, that, that kind of thing you'd have to face. but. I think it is surely useful to have a sense in retrospect of how a tool is being used so there's any hope of doing reasonable policy around it. I'd say the same for the right to be forgotten. Whatever you think on the merits of the right to be forgotten, the idea that how it is being used must never be known, much less forgotten, seems to me to have, I, this is a corollary to Godman's Law, but an Orwellian characteristic to it. I'm sorry, it earns the label. So I would be in favor of that. And I have some evolving skepticism although humility about my skepticism, 
about companies being good neighbors. I think that era for this kind of stuff may be creating more problems than it is solving. Surely if there is a ticking time bomb, it might be right in that instance for the company not to wait for the paperwork to follow or something. Um, but in general, to have this stuff done by a handshake, it may be healthiest for an open society in these matters, but you have to structurally do it. And one last thing, I think in this case, Apple was not the one that wanted to reveal the request in San Bernardino. I think they might have been quite pleased to have this be under seal, maybe we can work something out on the QT. It was the FBI that happily took it to the press because it was such a perfect case in which to press their larger claim, I think. Over here. Hi, my name is Solano Agostino. I go to the college here, and I'm coming into this case with two basic assumptions. One is that the phone is more and more an extension of ourself, and then two, that encryption is not really a gray area issue, right? It's very black and white. Either data is encrypted or it is not encrypted. And so I think it's impossible to outlaw encryption because you can't outlaw math. And so when <laughs> Apple inevitably, probably now sooner rather than later, comes out with technology that they themselves can't crack, how can we say that we can't allow that if one, we can't really outlaw that because somebody else is just gonna go do it, and two, where then is the difference between a 1984 Orwellian scenario where we can observe what everyone does everywhere all the time in real life versus in their technological life? I think the issue has been settled about the US government, quote, outlawing encryption or try to set a certain standard of encryption which you can't exceed. That was completely decided, at least within the executive branch in 1993. I don't think that's gonna go back and it would be completely crazy to do so because uh, uh, technology is moving so fast. So I think that that worry that you have about, if I've understood the question properly, about trying to quite out, you know, set some standard on encryption. Or, but I, I would caution you to think that it's possible to develop perfect encryption. It's a longer discussion. Well, encryption, they can crack themselves, right? Like in the newer phones, for example, because this is a relative Sorry, phone. they being whom? Apple. Apple, yeah, yeah, but I'm still worried about that sophomore MIT guy who could, might be able to do it. <laughs> uh, but I, I, w I want to tell you, I, I know a little bit about this. That, that uh, it, It's a mathematical matter. There may be exotic limits, but there are always clever things to be done about it. So I'm just cautious about this. I mean, As a mathematical matter for data at rest, you can surely encrypt it so there is absolutely no way to decrypt it without the key, no matter what, forever. I agree with that. There's a bit of a parlor trick there, though, because the whole point is you have to keep the key secret. And if you know how to keep the key secret, just keep the data secret. So whether or not it's that helpful is another matter. Um, I, I'm reminded of a maxim that I think was coined by my uh, friend and sometime colleague Larry Lessig, which is that small fences can keep in large mammals. And that is to say, we don't live in a world of theory, we live in a world of practice. There may be many people who don't bother, I mean, when's the last time you checked your Facebook privacy settings to see if they're exactly <laughs> the way they are? And talk about the paradox of choice there. It's just like, that's even worse than watching the paint dry on an MLAT. Um, so there are ways in which- Is an MLAT a, an agreement or an animal? Uh, it's an agreement, at least. <laughs> I have no view on whether it is an animal. But um, I see uh, the complexities of actually in practice keeping secrets, including people, maybe who don't even just fail to ask for the encryption available to them, but who opt not to have it or have it and then regret it later because they forget their passcode. And then they really wish there were a way for Apple to get into the phone. All of these <laughs> things will mean that I think in an evolving marketplace, for the large mammals who are not privacy paranoid, possibly because they are not thinking of a life of crime and terrorism, they will not be asking for nor given the kind of black and white encryption that you're talking about. They're gonna wanna search their Gmail online, which means Gmail for the foreseeable future will want to be able to see it as well and it will therefore be subject to legal process. All of those things mm -hmm. will keep it as a, a gray area. Up here. My name is Nicholas Boucher. I'm a student here uh, in the undergraduate college studying computer science. Uh, and my, my question for you actually kind of pushes back on your uh, answer that you just gave. 
but but my, my question is this. Do you think that uh, it is truly feasible that the FBI, and by extension the United States government, does not have the capabilities and intellectual power to actually break into this common consumer phone? And if we were to say that they probably did have the intellectual power to break into this phone, could this entire, um, this entire story just be a political move on the FBI's behalf to push this agenda that you've been referring well, to? Well, uh, it's at least fair <laughs> to say, That's a good question. not can you break it, but most of the time, at what cost and effort? Are we really gonna start trying to read the chip through some form of hardware de-etching to figure out what the uh, key inside the secure enclave is? And if we do it for this phone, which who knows how much it's seen as critical to do it for this phone, what about Cy Vance's stack of 150 phones? I mean, the status quo ante was one of kiosks in FBI field offices that uh, law enforcement could show their badge, go to the kiosk, take the phone in which they have possession, plug it in, and check a box that says, I have legal authority to do this, and read the contents of the phone. That was the status quo for a while, and anything that changes that is seen as a threat, even if technically you could get in. And by the way, to learn more about it, read the Inspector General report on those kiosks, which notes several worrisome qualities, including the honor system as far as saying that you've got uh, a warrant. So, so those, yeah. I think your question is a good one. And indeed, I think it was hinted at in the uh, uh, paper issued by the New York uh, magistrate who said that he was not convinced that there wasn't an alternative way for FBI to get this information from this phone. He hadn't been convinced of that. And I think what you raise is a, is a, is a perfectly plausible, I don't know that it's so or not so, but a perfectly uh, plausible point and a good one. Thank you. Over here. Hi, uh, I'm Dan Kennedy. I'm a Joan Shorenstein Fellow uh, in the Kennedy School this semester. Um, both of you have talked about a role for Congress, the courts, and what that proper role should be. And yet at the same time, you both concede that not very long from now, Apple and other companies will be able to uh, create encryption systems that uh, they will themselves not be able to get into. What would the role of Congress and the courts be when essentially the engineers for Apple and other companies have made the decisions for them? I don't believe that that's the case. I mean, I know that it's been stated here, but I don't believe that uh, there will be an instance where uh, Apple will, will produce a phone where it will not have easily available uh, software, or they won't have developed the software, is what I should say, to get back into their phone, or they won't have kept uh, the original operating system instructions which would let them do it. But uh, I, I don't think that, that um, it's the case that there will ever be a, a, an instance where a device is made that with enough effort and time, you're not gonna be able to get into it. But again, that, even if that were true, it might matter if you produce a device that takes 24 hours to get into versus yes. three weeks versus right. a month. And I might make one less, another completely you know, suspicious, paranoid point. All of these phones are made in China. All of their So why chips. should they be the only ones to have access to Exactly. Yeah. There you go. There you go. <laughs> That's a fair point. And so I think what I would say if I were advising Congress right now would be stand down. Don't panic. <laughs> uh, don't worry about getting to this last interstice of this one thing that you think you need. There's a whole constellation of data points out there. We've never, thankfully, lived in an era where every piece of personal data is scrutable so long as you have a warrant. There's all sorts of practical and other difficulties in getting to it. And I think, really zooming out, I know we're nearly at time, to the larger picture, and, and I'm curious, a, a former DCI's view on this kind of issue, which is, it may always be better to have more information if you're trying to make a decision or figure out what's going on, but there can also be an illusion generated by having so much information, the illusion that you are in control and with just one more data point, you can 
game it all out and figure it out. And I think that is a tricky thing to chase. And that strategically coming to peace with the idea that there may be some things we can't solve or some data that is practically beyond reach, especially amidst the embarrassment of riches that we have and that we really do need to be talking about as civil libertarians about how to properly balance and protect, that's why you shouldn't panic that we can come up with a case in which I wish the clairvoyant could come up with the code to get me into the phone, but maybe it is best for so many reasons not to insist that the phone be built so that we can always guess it. John, do you have a view on that? Is how much of a problem would it be if phones went dark, but all of the other stuff was still out there? Uh, if phones go dark, I mean, as I keep on trying to say, I don't believe that phones irrevocably go dark. There's always going to be some amount of effort and time which will get you what you want to need. need. But let me go back to the issue of the illusion of control and whether more of this information makes you better or not. I want to state, state clearly that there certainly is the illusion of control, and I don't <laughs> debate that. But I also say that government, writ large or small, is much better with more information than less. That's just, for me, an absolute I, I, I have one minute, do I have one minute? Yeah, yeah. I want to get back to, uh, you know, I'm a much older than everybody here. <laughs> and, uh, you, know, you know, safe deposit boxes. Tell me about safe deposit boxes. You know, I, I, I keep all the love letters from my wife in my safe deposit box. It's called your heart. <laughs> <laughs> There's only one letter, so it's like, uh, but, uh, uh, so, uh, <laughs> Uh, there might be more. So, so uh, remind me about how a safe deposit box system works. You go into your bank, you go down and you say, my name is Deutsch, here's my code. A guy with a ring of keys to everybody's safe deposit box opens the box. No, no, it's a two-key system. You, got your key you bring yours, they bring theirs, no, it's no, like no. launching a missile. I'm going to get to the two-key system. Oh, sorry. I'm going to get to the two-key oh, system, sorry, sorry. Two key system <laughs> because what if I lose that key? I think they're supposed to have to drill it out. Correct. There you go. This is and probably Kabuki Theater. They have a key. But. No, no, I think they probably do drill it out. At least that's what they do in the black and white movies. Yeah, that's I what think. I mean. It's but, Kabuki uh, Theater. The point I want to make is take that sequence. That's what we're facing here. That's exactly analogous to what we say. Well, now, the, somebody said the iPhones are an extension of our cells. Not true of the safe deposit boxes. But the, really the sequence, two-key system and then drilling it out, and the, the guy with a key and a cop can get in anyway. Well, two, two <laughs> quick points on that. One, you still haven't answered the shredder question. Should we insist that shredders basically be drillable in the sense of don't shred well, too I've well. said that, that issue's decided, the answer's no. Okay. If somebody goes up to yes. whatever level of encryption, in Got my it. view, that the government has made that the, decision. The other point that I'm reminded of by uh, Bruce, who is, um, just texted me this point, is um, is that sorry, Mr. Is that is that fair? I figured transparency I is formally, the only important I'm principle. Formally making an objection. <laughs> you may cover your ears if you don't wish to be persuaded <laughs> by this very good point, which is that banks are fiduciaries. There's an added layer of trust when you go to your bank that says they realize they have certain power over your affairs and like a client to a lawyer or a patient to a doctor, they have to look out for you. And that may well mean that they have added reason to conceive of their role as making that box one. They will not drill out lightly against your wishes. And the companies in question, the Apples of the world, the Googles of the world, the Facebooks of the world, they are not fiduciaries. If they're looking out for us, it is only because our interests happen the, to align. Right the now. word so fiduciary makes me yeah. speechless. We can't, don't have time to go on, but I've come It's not as speechless. bad as MLAT, is it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, we have time for just one more question over here. Uh, my name's Christopher Smart. I'm a fellow in the Institute of Politics, and I actually Great. had the safety deposit question, safety deposit box question, because I think it's, a, for me, an, a, a very useful analogy. Uh, and, and how you balance national security and privacy concerns. It seems to me that it, the technology is different, the encryption is different, but 
it's data that's inaccessible in the same way. My second and related question is how does data, uh, how should we think differently about data on a phone versus data in the cloud? Or does that just present the same I, I think it's the identical solution. And certainly the data in the cloud is a much more troublesome, ultimately troublesome case because uh, much information can be stored there, doesn't go away and it has real potential for harm. And people can change it, disturb it. So I think that the cloud offers much more challenging issues eventually. It does show that the current case is best seen as a bellwether yes. rather than as the case of the century, yeah. both because of yes. successive phones and because of your point about the cloud. Uh, and to the extent that we can encourage companies that store so much personal information to do so in a way that does not require for their business model that they have ready access to it at any moment, that strikes me as a very good thing because if they do have that ready access, it is so uh, ready to be compromised through so many different vectors of which lawful process is just one. And that's why things like homomorphic encryption where you could search in the cloud encrypted data, it's not ready for prime time, it's not even ready for anything yet, but somebody should give it $15 million and I'm sure MIT would happily take it and generate a paper <laughs> over it. That we ought to be thinking of ways uh, to do it. Another thing I've been cooking with is, uh, they talk about going dark, the problem. I've been thinking a lot about going cold. Shouldn't we have routine ways as best practices for security that data that is not needed in a heartbeat is put one step away from just, if the password is compromised, it all goes out the door. These are the kinds of things we really need to be thinking about for the reasons you suggest. Yeah. Very good. So this is a fascinating discussion. I think what I take away for sure is that neither the pro uh, encryption nor the pro law enforcement slash security positions, the pure versions are just not correct. And we're nowhere near at this point being able to say what the trade-off, the real practical trade-off, if there is one between privacy and security is because so many of the features that we need to answer that question are underdeveloped. We, the technologies are underdeveloped, the policy frameworks are underdeveloped, the norms and the laws were just not there. And it's especially, I think, institutional trust is uh, a very real and important factor because I have very different answers to the extent to which I'm willing to trade off the ability of law enforcement versus my, the strength of the encryption of my data depending on what my level of institutional trust is, right? And so I, we're nowhere near being able to make that trade off and, and someday I'm sure we'll have to answer those questions, but until then, I think it, we ought to go where both of you are suggesting, is that we develop the policies and the technologies to try to advance both at the same time until we come to those sharp trade-offs. And that is work that is urgently needed, and I hope that the people in this room or some of them will join us in figuring out what those technologies and those policies ought to be. And thank you very much, John and Jonathan, for illuminating the first steps on that path. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. It's good.